Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name's Simon Rofe. I'm going to be talking about sport and diplomacy. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, my research in sport and diplomacy. Forgive me at the outset if it is potentially rather egotistical, but I would posit at the outset that we have moved the field forward and identified something about sport and diplomacy that wasn't there previously. So it's pretty difficult to disassociate and disentangle it from um, the work that I and a group of other people have been doing in this field in the last five, six, seven years. So we're going to look through um, some definitions because we're academics and that's kind of how we're conditioned to start things off. Going a little bit about the context of this in terms of global diplomacy, which provides some antecedents uh, to things that um, we're going to talk about, and then look at the sport and diplomacy sort of different dimensions of it, and this um, you know perhaps caricature of a sport diplomatique, and then manifestations in informal diplomacy is a sort of case study of what we're doing, and to say that I'm going to talk about conclusions is something perhaps. Um, either optimistic or unrealistic, because actually what I'd really benefit from at this point is thinking about the next questions that we're going to engage with and think about where the question, where sport and diplomacy goes next. So by way of um, introduction, this is me stood outside Buckingham Palace in approximately August 2012. You'll see I'm adorned with a particularly charming uh, outfit as a games maker for the uh, 2012 uh, Olympics and Paralympic Games and I'm stood with lots of my Paralympic uh, and Olympic Games maker colleagues um, as we were invited to this uh, parade as it came down through London wound its way from the Olympic uh, Park through London uh, past Fleet Street and through Trafalgar Square and what have you and ended up at Buckingham Palace um, where uh, an unlikely crowd of um, David Cameron and the Pet Shop Boys entertained us for uh, 40 minutes um, in a celebratory moment. So this gives you a sort of insight into um, at least part of the role that I saw and some of the inspiration, individual inspiration that I took from this opportunity to be part of the International Relations Department of LOCOP during the summer of 2012. And these are two images which I've shared with like Sir Charlie before he's taken my course, but I share them with the rest of you here because they illustrate two very important things. The image in the top, your top right, um, is of a gentleman by the name of Greg Hartung, who was the vice chair of the International Paralympic Committee at the time and was the gentleman I uh, volunteered to work for during the course of the 12, 14 weeks of uh, summer of 2012. Now, Greg Hartung is an Australian businessman who made his money in uh, shipping stuff around Australia. And as you know, Australia is quite big, so there's quite a lot of shipping that needs to be done. Um, he was and uh, remains one of the at least the top three most effective diplomats I've ever come across. He received no formal diplomatic training, um, but he was an outstanding diplomat for his cause. He was an advocate, certainly, of the Paralympic movement of Australia, of Oceania, which was the regional uh, component of his uh, of the IOC's organisation, so the IPC's organisation that he was party to. And he was um, a charming gentleman, but was also just an outstanding a bit of a communicator, advocacy skills, really effective operator. Um, he was doing it as a voluntary exercise. He wasn't paid to be in London during the course of summer of 2012. He had enough money to be able to do that. 
and you know not fear for the roof over his head he and i went to a lot of functions we visited a lot of houses which are a function of um, mega sporting events they are de facto embassies that are set up for the duration of the uh, sporting mega event and the you know they have different particular national characteristics so the german one was particularly well renowned because it was sponsored by all the german breweries so there was a good reason to party with the germans which um, was fun and exciting but Greg's modus operandi, and he had a sort of minute-by-minute daily schedule, was to attend one of these events. We were never there for more than half an hour. He never got to drink more than two mouthfuls of his beer or wine or whatever else that he was plied with. But he did manage to speak to nearly everyone who he needed to. And what was fascinating about it was how many people came to talk to him rather than he was going out to advocate directly to different uh, individuals and organisations. So when you were being approached by our then uh, London Mayor, uh, you know, erstwhile Foreign Secretary, and um, the likes of Lord Coe, who would, as you know, chair of LOCOG, was asking Greg how he thought things were going, as opposed to the other way around. It was a fascinating insight, and it certainly inspired me to ask some questions about how did this Australian businessman operate at this high level of international sport during the you know, most striking event uh, in the UK for the last, you know, 40 years or however long. The second image is particularly um, apposite for our discussion because it alerts us to the different jurisdictions and sovereignties that come into play in diplomacy. So you'll see four flags there. The image is taken in the um, Olympic Village uh, now. Uh, and some of you may be living there, student accommodation um, down in Stratford. Um as the Australian team are being introduced to the village, there's a ceremony for the welcoming of each team into their uh, accommodation. Um, so in the foreground, you have uh, the silver-haired lady there is uh, the High Commissioner to Australia. So whatever your views of um, British-Australian relations, she is the head of state for Australia, appointed by the Queen, which you know many Australians have a problem with and I might be inclined to agree with them if I was them um, but she is nevertheless the head of state as our former or as our director was previously so uh, Baroness Amos held that position before this uh, lady the name of whom escapes me momentarily and her husband there were four flags there then the four flags are the important part to take away from this reading from right to left you have your right uh, the IPC flag the International Paralympic Committee the United Nations flag the LOCOG flag, and the Union Jack. So you have an international sporting organization in the IPC. You have the global preeminent international organization in the United Nations. You have a local temporally defined organizing committee in LOCOG that disbanded the day after the Olympics finished. And you have the national flag of a country called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland to give it its full title. And... One of the things that fascinated me then, and I still think holds true as to carrying on this conversation, is that only in a sporting mega event would you have those four jurisdictions coming together. And I think that is really one of the most fascinating things as to how these different uh, organizations, entities, actors in international affairs um, come together and work to the extent that they do and raise and challenge issues that they don't. So 
I think that gives you a little bit of an insight into a how much of a sort of personal journey this has been for me over the last what now eight years, and also the sense to which this is a um, multi-dimensional uh, conversation around global diplomacy. So I shall offer some further explanation of that, but I do want to give you your sort of health warning here that um, definitions can be subjective. So I would like to think that I have um, given sufficient thought to this over the course of the last six, uh, eight years to provide something that is definitive. But I'd also be mindful of the fact that these are evolving terms, if not contested yet. And what we've managed to do, to say I, along with a couple of other colleagues, is to put together something that looks like a field or subfield of diplomatic studies addressing sport and diplomacy. So you can read into the um, metaphor literally or metaphorically in that we have seen a emergence of this field. To give you some context in global diplomacy, so my access point, if you like, into thinking about the world of sport other than from the position of um, a fan is to think about how I've uh, my thinking has developed around the sort of three core characteristics of diplomacy as communication, negotiation, and representation. And where those uh, circles overlap, you end up in uh, diplomatic practice. So that's not to say that you know we are communicating of a fashion now. I'm doing a lot of communicating, or perhaps doing some listening. There is always a negotiation involved in those uh, transactions. And there's some representative quality because that talks about our identity. And when these three come together, that's when the magic happens, as it were. We're talking about global diplomacy. So in the image in the top right, which is a French President Macron celebrating the French World Cup victory in summer, you know, Macron is there as an individual Frenchman, someone who's clearly quite pleased at that particular juncture. But he's also the president of France, and he can't get away from that and his representative quality at that particular juncture. There is a communicate, communicate, yeah, communicative function that he's performing, not just in his sort of exuberance there, but in talking to and the opportunity that you know, the 22 players on the pitch, the referees, the fans in the stadium, those of us who watch the match, wherever it may, we may have been in the world, you know, there's a clearly an audience that is communicated to and with in that kind of uh, practice. And there's a negotiation because he's also sat there next to the uh, Croat uh, president, President Putin. And that's not to say that um, particular high-level deals were struck on that rather what turned out to be damp afternoon in Moscow. But there's a negotiation around them being there. There's a negotiation between different communities of how, for example, the Croat president paid for out of her own pocket, um, nominally, her um, being present at the matches, her travel to and from um, Croatia back to Moscow. Now, it's not to say that she couldn't have called on an expenses account, I'm sure, but great play was made of the fact that she paid her own way as her fellow uh, Croats attempted to, uh, to varying degrees of success. So the negotiation is not just that those individuals are there at the time, but that the tournament took place. You know, a process that began 12 years earlier with you know the formal processes of Russia winning the bid. And however Russia won the bid in 2012, 
there's also a negotiation whether it's, it was legal or not um, I leave to speculation but um, there is a negotiation that's gone on there's a negotiation about how the stadiums were built how the stadiums were financed etc 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 none of these things happen in isolation there's a transactional quality to it so that provides a um, backdrop to some of the challenges that we face in talking about sport and diplomacy and I want to provide a discussion here at least around some terminology that you may have been familiar with or that provides at least one lens into this so coming to the subject of sport and diplomacy one of the sort of or these dimensions are certainly part of the conversation and we've had to sort of carve out where sport and diplomacy exists within these terms and in relation to these practices. So I think there's a, an important understanding to develop between all of these terms and they will be banded around and, you know, it's occasionally possible that I may um, speak to one when I mean to speak to another. But nevertheless, when writing and thinking about this, there's important distinctions because they can provide different sort of analytical lenses to look at the practice of sport and diplomacy. And what I'm very much concerned about is this practice uh, dimension. So cultural policy, start at the bottom around, thinking about the outputs of different organizations that have cultural values. Now, I would say that um, a sports club, uh, like a university, has particular cultural values that it would seek to put into policy terms. And policy is only ever one dimension of this. If you jump to the top and think about cultural relations, there's always a, again, the transactional dimension, thinking about how uh, we relate to different cultural values across, you know, often we think of these in terms of national boundaries, but they needn't be. They can be regional, local, global to an extent. There is a uh, relational quality there. And jumping to uh, your uh, right-hand side, public diplomacy and soft power, a particular form of um, transaction in this regard. Public diplomacy has received a lot of attention in the last 10, 12, 15 years in diplomatic studies literature. Uh, it's very much the sort of um, doyen of um, the field. In some senses, it's nothing very new talking to other people's audiences, but as diplomacy has evolved, it's made doing that more um, accessible, talking through different technologies. We can think of all our social media channels that we can pick up what you know a foreign prime minister said rather than it coming through national context. And the discussion of soft power, which you know it's uh, 15 minutes into this presentation, is very difficult to get away from uh, ignoring soft power. Joseph Nye's idea that you can influence by shaping people's desire to be like you. Um, so reasons why not so much you want to get on in any other way, but because people uh, admire your values and what have you. Um, and intangible in many regards, despite the fact that many people have written lots and lots about it in the last um, decade or two since um, he first articulated this, not least Nye. And for those of you who are interested, I would recommend plotting out his sort of histori the historiography of his own writing on this because it's evolved to a significant degree and the um, sort of blandishment that most people think, right, Joseph Nye said this about soft power and either quote his political annals um, article from 1996 or subsequently, just as a single point of reference, overlooks the fact how far his thinking has evolved. And then to think about, and I think this is where I've ended up with 
with sport and diplomacy is thinking of it within the framework of cultural diplomacy as a particular form of um, values that transcend um, previously held national characteristics. So thinking about how we can uh, be involved in that communication, negotiation, um, representation of cultures and diplomacy simultaneously. I'm not entirely sure that um, everything that happens within what I come on to talk about in sport and diplomacy falls within this um, framework, but as a, as a sort of handhold on our way to understanding it, I think it's a useful uh, contribution. So these forms of thinking have certainly come together um, in how I've understood um, sport uh, diplomacy, sport diplomatic thinking about how you've actually got a number of overlapping values, concentric circles um, illustrated here that mean you can talk about something that doesn't just represent a, you know, a sporting event, doesn't just represent a particular diplomatic practice, but actually has a character all of its own. So this is where you need to apply that health warning. Uh, dimension. This is how I would describe um, sport and diplomacy. So this nexus in global affairs of sporting and diplomatic realms, that overlapping, where multidirectional dimensions of social, political and economic networks between and amongst a full range of polities. So forgive me if that sounds too um, academic occasionally, we have to do that, but in terms of translating it, it means about the connectivity and the opportunities that sport provides to have conversations that wouldn't be held otherwise. I don't think it's too far to say that, um, you know, at least for many of you in the room, watching a sporting event in a foreign country in a bar where you don't know anyone, but because you're there watching the sport and you end up having conversations with people, very sort of base level, if you like, but it speaks to the idea of people-to-people -people diplomacy, that actually some of those connections are indeed the most valuable and providing insight and knowledge exchange. So a lot of the focus on this has been around um, sports mega events. There's a wonderful thing about studying this is that there's a calendar, there's a fixture list of things. We know that there'll be another Olympics in uh, two years time there'll be another world cup in four years time the world championships in whichever sport roll around you know annually biannually however often they do there's something to set your clock to and that i think affects the uh nature of the diplomatic activity diplomats love a timetable one of the things that richelieu was always um talking about was this continue uh, negotiation continual the idea that you continually had negotiation and because there's always the next fixture you can keep coming back to this notion that there is always something to to talk about. So the 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 fixture list of sport provides a particular handhold to the fixture list for uh, diplomacy. I think, therefore, you know whether you're talking about you know the Olympics as the preeminent sport mega event, talking about your um, the World Cup, as the Football World Cup, that is, Football Men's World Cup, I should correct myself, uh, as the biggest single um, single sport event, or indeed other multi-sport events, European Championships, Commonwealth Games, uh, Asian Championships, etc., etc. Each of these have particular characteristics. There are 
a lot of focus has been on, and particularly with regard to the recent World Cup, Russia and Qatar in terms of bidding processes. So there's lots to be said for that discussion. But equally, the focus on some of those events has been not, I think, to or to distract from the broader conversation that understanding sport and diplomacy gives us. So here you're talking about the interaction of all of these different polities and what Alan Tomlinson's called Singo's Sporting International Non-Governmental Organisations as being an um, important um, function. So whether we're looking at FIFA or the IOC or FIBA, the International Basketball Association, any of these organisations can provide, you know, a interesting sort of wonderful little case studies and why would we study them in any different way to the way we would study UNESCO or the IMF or any other uh, international organization. Each of them have their own you know, bureaucratic um, character, their own funding model, et cetera, et cetera, which influences the shape of which they do. What's remarkable about all of you know, the uh, sporting organizations is how much they replicate each other and how much they replicate the nature of international organizations. So the secretariats, you know, based in places like Lausanne and Geneva, the uh, executive heads, who in some senses have a huge amount of executive power and in others are inhibited hugely by their national um, governing bodies, you know, these are, uh, forgive me, read na nation states within the UN system. So in all of these, there are particular characteristics that, you know, we need to uh, understand more uh, clearly because we haven't spent a great deal of time in the international relations, international studies field, looking at how this tranche of uh, organizations operate. And, you know, lest we forget, they have a huge capacity to touch individuals. Millions of people will watch a World Cup final. Millions of people spend millions of dollars, pounds, rupees, whatever currency in following sport, however it may be. There's a whole raft of issues that flow out of this. Um, the media industry in many regards in the 21st century is based on three things. One is Facebook's love of cats. Secondly, is about high-level politics. And thirdly, it's about sport. So, you know, there are more transactions on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, about sport than, you know, health policy or food or anything else. So sport has a capacity to, you know, touch people, regardless of whether they like the sporting activity in ways that other facets of life don't. So this leads on to sort of various sort of holes, I would suggest, within the topography of studying sport and diplomacy for trying to provide some holistic um, understanding of where sport fits into the overall diplomatic world. And there are, you know, gaps around certainly the ethics of sport and diplomacy and these aren't things around necessarily just Lance Armstrong uh, choosing to dope in his sport of cycling but they are actually about some of the bigger ethical challenges to how you operate competitions who gets to compete how do you get to come into uh, the country to compete because we're all dealing with these issues of sovereignty so for example the um, in the sport of lacrosse the uh, Iroquois um, in the United States, a, uh, recognized by the federal government in the United States as having a particular uh, indigenous identity, don't have passport, US passports, they have Iroquois passports, but the UK border force didn't recognize this when the lacrosse world championships were, take, were taking place in the UK four years ago now. So they weren't allowed into the country. 
despite being actually the world's best team in this particular sport. So because they didn't have the requisite paperwork, which might seem like a rather trite thing, the passports, actually they weren't able to compete in their sport. Particular exemptions are made in national context. You will recall from the Olympics in uh, Korea in earlier on in the year that you know, Russian athletes competed under the IOC flag the, uh, rather than their national flag. So representatives of Russia. So rather than being uh, Russian athletes. So in each of these occasions, there are particular sort of representative qualities that haven't necessarily been explored in the same light as they would be if you were a refugee or migrant in for economic or political reasons. So some of these, um, clearly there's an intersectionality of these issues between sport, gender, race, economics, politics that people haven't necessarily spent a great deal of time looking at previously. And that speaks to a number of different identities that sport and diplomacy exposes. So whether one is, um, as it were, participating in or uh, watching a sporting event as a fan of a team or an individual, one you know that's quite a clear case of an identity. A stadium full of people wearing a football shirt gives you a clear sense of one of their identities. But there, no one has just one identity at any given point in time. However much they might scream and shout about it because of a, an event on the pitch, there are multiple identities struck through or you know, running through individuals, communities, polities, and nation states. You know, it wasn't uh, it was only seventy-eight years ago that our friend Mr. Orwell were working in Senate House over the road. Um, wrote about sports, the sort of opiate of the masses, you know, talking about how na- nothing could be worse for nationalist causes than having 11 representatives run around on a football pitch. I mean, he was very particular about his context here as the early Cold War and um, seeking to uh, challenge the idea of a nation state. But nevertheless, there's something there about how many identities can people adopt. If you're thinking now about you know, high-level individual athletes as ambassadors, now, they're ambassadors primarily for their own cause. You know, LeBron James, um, Lionel Messi, Serena Williams have, you know, are significant financial entities in their own right. And things that um, they might seek to challenge um, are, I dare say, compromised or at least influenced by their um, financial advisors. Now, it may be that those three individuals and others in that sort of top-level bracket have a capacity to act because of their position and the financial consequences can be mitigated because how many more millions do you need when you've got X you know, number of millions? But nevertheless, they do have you know, that communicative, representative and uh, negotiated position. Now, you could look at someone like Serena Williams and particularly her engagement with the uh, Nike's campaign around Kaepernick in recent times. You know, she was very much, you know, front and foremost of that uh, campaign, along with Colin Kaepernick, as to standing up to a particular issue she sees within U.S. politics. Now, whatever your view of that, her platform as you know the preeminent you know tennis player of her age, indeed arguably ever female tennis player, is one identity. Her identity as a mother, recent mother. Her identity as a black woman in the United States. All of these identities come together to give her a platform. They're not mono um, identities. So the fact that she was also the world's best female tennis player is the access point, you might say. But she's also a significant contributor to that debate in the United States, more so than perhaps any other black female 
mother, perhaps Oprah, um, for a way of comparison. But I think sport gives some uh, platform that others, other formats don't. So a lot of that is about brand, and it's impossible to talk about someone like Serena Williams or Cristiano Ronaldo and not recognize their own brands and how far their brands are constructed. And you know, for someone like Ronaldo at the moment, facing a particular challenge over, his, over the allegations of uh, rape, which brings in another dimension of the sort of ethical values that you see in the identity questions within particular sports. And certainly it's not to deify sportsmen and women. There have been plenty of flawed characters in sport as there have been in other walks of life. And so we shouldn't forget that there are certainly dark sides to sport and diplomacy. It's not to set it up as um, the be-all or end all, end all. But I think it's worth bearing in mind here how sport puts people on that pedestal. And we can objectify them in a way that we don't to other people uh, and other individuals and groups of people in life. So there's a certain diplomatic character that uh, matters here. There's also something here about our appeal and how sport engages with us as individuals, whatever our engagement with particular sports and how we put values to um, these activities. So just in terms of the vernacular, a lot of sport is about achievement. It's about redemption. There's a particular language that comes with talking about sport. So in these examples here, you're talking about I declare the games open, as you would do. This is something that you know, every chair of the IOC says at the beginning of the um, Olympic Games, but it's as though uh, the authority has been bestowed upon them to open these games for the youth of the world. And the gold medal is awarded too. There is a personal transaction to this, which I think is, again, something we uh, need to um, recognise. So... I could go on, but I'm I'm mindful of time and I'd like to get your thoughts on this. So let's just scoot through this next slide, thinking about where we are and the sort of questions for the future. And it strikes me that this is a particularly apposite moment for studying this because it can be so practitioner-led and the practitioners are not necessarily people who have huge amounts of diplomatic training like Greg back in 2012 or um, people who have huge amounts of sporting talent necessarily, which are normally the ingredients as to how you would see yourself as a sporting uh, diplomat. But rather than think of you know, your LeBron James and Cristiano Ronaldo, I would think of you know, the uh, chief operating officer at the IOC, the uh, head of finance at um, the UN Office for Sport Development and Peace, as was. These are the people who are conducting diplomacy in the way that it's not often prime ministers and presidents who do that. They may give the communique and sign the document on the front lawn of the White House. But actually, it's the uh, operational level people who actually are making and deciding on the practice of sport diplomacy. Um, through their day-to-day -day interactions, their people-to-people -people diplomacy, arranging for you know fixtures to be organized. You know, that's a diplomatic transaction. You know, how are you going to get you know, um, 2,000 England football fans to Croatia and back? Well, luckily enough, they didn't need to because the game was played behind closed doors. But they didn't stop a whole bunch of people travelling to deepest, darkest Croatia to stand on a hill outside a stadium and watch a match. Partly that's you know, just some baseline security, making sure that um, you know, people are well cared for in sort of consular activities. 
but a lot of diplomacy is about consular activities. You know, making sure people have the right visas, traveling on the right papers, if they get into trouble, are able to get home, have a representative in uh, uh, overseas lands. And also that poses a question about who are the practitioners here? You know, are they those high-level athletes? Are they you know, scholars like ourselves? Are they um, people within different sporting organizations? Are the people just in you know, the media, um, consumers of sport as ambassadors? And there's an interesting network here that's developing, and this is one of the sort of next questions from um, my research, looking at who are the stakeholders one has to engage with in talking about sport and diplomacy. So in some of the conversations we've had recently and events we've had here at SOAS is who's on the guest list and how am I thinking about getting those people together? Who do I invite? You know, what's the theme that's going to drag them um, away from their desks to spend some time talking and thinking about that? And one of the things we've been doing in that regard is sort of outreach. So created a podcast series um, for the sport and diplomacy world which you know you're welcome to tap into but it's one of the interesting things about that is how you bring together different voices and have different conversation or the same conversations with different constituencies so there are a number of other outputs um not least a egotistical picture of a cover of a book that we did um amongst other things but there are different ways of engaging in this field which isn't which i find distinct from my previous academic work, which has seen, in some senses, a more traditional uh, academic output. So, where we are in the forest of sport and diplomacy? Well, I think over the course of the last six years, and I'll um, end on this, um, and not least because um, my um, but one line manager um, identified this as a... um, Subfield, you've identified a subfield, Simon. Have I? Okay. Um, we've identified a football pitch in the middle of this um, forest of activity. We're not quite sure what the fixture list is. Don't know who, how many players are going to turn up. Don't quite know when the game's going to kick off or um, you know what competition we're playing in. But what we've done over the last six years is identify that there is a field there and that we can play on it, and that other people will join us at various points in time. And perhaps what we need to do now in terms of our study is to think about this in where's the infrastructure, where's the transport network, where's the maintenance, where are the fans going to go, how are you going to get people to come back to the conversation year on year or week on week. And so with that, I shall uh, end my remarks and welcome your questions. Thank you.